In biblical times, many skin conditions were known as leprosy. Anything from dermatosis, psoriasis, lupus, ringworm. But it probably also included what we today know as leprosy, uh, Hansen's disease. True leprosy is a slowly developing progressive disease that damages the skin and the nervous system. Ulcers, skin lesions, pale, flat areas of skin, eye damage, and then later on, large ulcerations, loss of fingers and toes, skin nodules and facial disfigurement. It's an awful disease. It is infectious, but only usually with prolonged contact. Now, in Jesus' day... Leprosy was a death sentence and even while you continued to live, it was like being in a living death. Lepers were cut off from their civilisation. They had to live outside of the camp. They weren't allowed to touch anyone. They had to stay off at a distance and cry out, unclean, to, to warn people away from them. Don't come too close to me. You could catch what I've got. And yet a man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord... If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He said, I am willing. Be clean. Jesus did the unthinkable. He touched the untouchable. And when Jesus touched that leper, by the law, Jesus would have instantly been unclean. And Jesus himself should have been cut off from everybody until it was proved that he himself hadn't contracted leprosy. But he did this. He reached out and he touched this man and he healed him. In 1873, a priest, Damien de Vuster, arrived in Kalawao on an Hawaiian island in Molokai and he went there to care for lepers. When he first arrived... Damien was careful to take precautions against the disease. Nevertheless, as he lived among his people, tending their sores, sharing their food, ministering the sacraments to them and working with the same tools they did, he showed no fear of the disease or revulsion of his patients. He didn't shrink back from the call to embrace them as his own brothers and sisters. By 1885, after 11 years of service... It was evident that Damien himself had contracted leprosy. In a letter he wrote to his bishop around this time, he said this, It is the memory of having lain under the funeral pole 25 years ago, the day of my vows, that led me to brave the danger of contracting this terrible disease in doing my duty here and trying to die more and more to myself The more the disease advances, I find myself content and happy at Kalawea. For the next five years, Damien continued to care for his fellow lepers. In 1888, Franciscan sisters came to Molokai to open an orphanage for the girls. By then, Damien also had the help of two priests and another lay volunteer. Slowly, Damien's body became overcome by leprosy. As his face became terribly disfigured, his larynx and lungs infected, his hands and feet encrusted with sores. Nevertheless, he persisted in his tireless activity until three weeks before his death, on April 15, 1889. 
a few days before he died, he said, The work of the lepers is in good hands. I'm no longer necessary, so I shall go up yonder. How's that for commitment to your cause, eh? Jesus touched the untouchables. Damien did too. How do you go with that? Are you willing to love the unlovable, to touch the untouchable, to socialise with the unsociable? Today I want to share with you four points from, from the reading that we had this morning. And the first one is what we've just discovered, the compassion of God to touch the untouchable. And I believe that's a challenge for each one of us as Christians. Way too often we Christians, we cut ourselves off from the undesirables, if you like. That's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is to touch the untouchables, to care for those who nobody else in society cares for. The second point that I believe comes out of this passage is the authority of Jesus. In the passage that we read today, there's a lot there about healing. The leper was healed, the centurion's servant was healed, Peter's mother-in-law was healed, and then towards the end of the reading, there's many evil spirits driven out, and Jesus healed all the sick that were brought to him. The miracles that Jesus performed were a sign of his authority. Last week we concluded, uh, we've been working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus went up onto a mountainside, heaps of people were following him, but he called his disciples to him and he started teaching them. And what he taught them was really, he's setting forth a grand vision of what the kingdom of God should be like. And as he concluded that, it tells us that when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Now, I wonder what amazed them. Do you think it was the great stories he had to tell? Well, he did have some great stories and some quite comical ones, talking about people with logs stuck in their eyes, trying to pick specks out of other people's eyes and so on and so forth. No, it wasn't. they weren't amazed at his stories. What they were amazed at was the authority that he spoke with because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so when Jesus comes down from the mountainside, these people have just been amazed with the authority of his teaching. And then he begins to demonstrate his authority over what we would see as the natural world with his supernatural power. He demonstrated his authority over sickness and disease and over evil spirits. It's about the authority of Jesus. He taught with authority and he demonstrated the authority of God. When Jesus healed the leper, it showed that Jesus also had the authority to break the old rules. You see, the old Jewish law, it, it, all it could do is say, you're unclean. When you're clean again... You come to the priest and we'll check you out and see how you are. But we can't do anything to make you clean. The Jewish law could not do anything to bring, to make clean what was unclean. All it could say is, well, that's clean and that's not clean. But Jesus had the authority to do that. Jesus had the authority to go up to that leper and make him clean again. And that's the authority of Jesus over your life and over my life. My sins and your sins are what make us unclean. Our sins are what cut us off from God. We can't come anywhere near God 
because our sins cut us off. Now, if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, that we'd be in a terrible predicament. We'd never be able to do anything about that. But Jesus Christ is the one who makes the unclean clean again. Jesus comes and when we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just, forgives us of all unrighteousness and makes us clean again. Jesus can take what is unholy and make it holy. Jesus has that authority. Now the Roman centurion, he of all people, recognised that authority. Now I don't know if you've ever noticed, but each of the Gospels has its own flavour. Right? So the Gospels are the four, first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The Gospels, they're the books which tell the story of Jesus. The word Gospel means good news. Right? So if you read your Bible, if you don't think you're reading good news, well, you're not understanding it right. Because the Bible is good news. The Gospels are good news. And each of these Gospels were written into different situations. They each have their own specific flavour. And the Gospel of, of Matthew has a very Jewish flavour about it. Matthew sets out to prove to Jewish readers that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? They'd been waiting for Jesus to come for, for a long time. The prophets had been speaking about this Messiah that, that, that um, they had to wait for who would come. And Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus is the one that the prophets had spoken of long ago and that they were waiting for. And yet here in this Jewish gospel, it is a Gentile, a Roman centurion, someone who's pretty much hated, who is the first to recognise the authority of Jesus. Right? So in the world of the Jew, there were Jews and there were Gentiles. So the Jews were the ones who had the promises of God. The Jews were, the, were God's people. They were the ones who had the law. They were the ones who had the temple sacrificial system. In their eyes, they were the good guys. And everybody else, well, they're Gentiles. They're not God's people. They're cut off. And of course the Roman centurion, he wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. But worse than that, he was a Roman centurion. And they were hated. Why? Well, I want you to imagine for a moment if your country, Australia, was invaded and conquered by another nation. Let's put one out there. Let's say the Chinese, right? They're big enough to do it. And the Chinese military then stepped in to keep law and order. Imagine that you lost your right to vote. Imagine that then they imposed very heavy taxes on everything that you did here in Australia so that they could fund their military machine which they are keeping control on you with. Imagine if they then took all of our natural resources back to their homeland and of course we got no royalties or anything for it. Now, how would Australians feel about the military commanders who walked up and down our streets, drove out on our country roads to keep an eye on us, to make sure that there'd be no hint of Aussie nationalism rising up that would want to try and seek freedom? That's what it was like for the Jews. The Roman soldiers, they weren't there on furlough to have a good time, to spend their bucks on their in the inn. The Roman soldiers were there for one reason, 
and that was to oppress them. And that was something that Rome did very well, was oppression. And the hated Roman centurion, their oppressor, was the one who recognised the authority of Jesus. He said, Lord, you don't even need to come to my house to heal my servant. You just say the word and he'll be healed. I know what authority is. I'm under authority, he said. And I've got soldiers. I say to this one, do this, and he does that. I say that one, do this and do that. And, and I say to my servant, you come here, and he comes. This man, this Roman centurion, he was very accustomed by authority. And he could see it in Jesus. Which brings us to the fourth lesson, the faith of the outcast. Jesus said, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. You see, at this point in history, the Jews saw themselves as the people of God and everybody else, the Gentiles, were cut off from God. And Jesus then said something to them which ripped at the heart of their elitist view of themselves. He said, many are going to come from the east and the west, from the outside, and will be included in the kingdom of heaven. Now that challenged them deeply, because they believed, hey, we're the people of God. And Jesus said, there's going to be people from the east and from the west, they're going to come. Now if you look back in the Old Testament scriptures, it says that. But then he said something which would have really made him angry. You know, sometimes we sort of think that Jesus was all light and love and never saying anything to offend anybody. Now, the problem with that view is, well, why would anybody ever crucify such a person? I'll tell you why they crucified him, because of this sort of thing that he said. He then said to them, but the subjects of the kingdom, right, talking about the Jews, talking about them, will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now what we find right throughout Matthew is that the last will be first and the first will be last. You are not born into the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God by having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't enter the kingdom of God by being born into the right denomination and and getting water splashed on your head at the right age. You don't enter the kingdom of God by being born into the right family. A family that's got a long line of godly people. You might stand a better chance because you've probably got a lot of people praying for you. But you're not born into the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the miracle of God is that often those who we might consider the least likely candidates to come to God, well, they're precisely the ones that God calls into his kingdom. God calls nobodies. God calls outsiders to become Christians. You know, we might sort of think to ourselves, what type of person would you know, be the most likely to become a Christian? Now, I know that sometimes we don't think about this, but what we do demonstrates what we actually believe. And if I'm sort of get friendly with a certain person, go, wow, that sort of person, they should be a Christian, you know? I might invite them to church. But 
There might be somebody else and go, oh man, they're a long way away. I'm not, no, I'm not, not even going to bother. Yeah, we might think of a nice person, a moral person, somebody who loves others, a rich man, but preferably a generous rich man. What type of person is it that we think is most likely to become a Christian? Well, there is no type. There is no type. And if we look at what happened with Jesus, it was the tax collectors, it was the prostitutes, it was the Roman centurions, the blind, the beggar, the diseased, the outcast. Don't ever say to yourself, I'm not good enough to be a Christian. Don't ever think to yourself, it's not worth putting effort into so-and-so, that they're just so far from God, it'd just be pointless. Don't do that. God doesn't call the good. God calls who he will and he makes them good. I've got a friend and he loves to get hold of old tractors and restore them. You get an old tractor and he pulls it right down, he cuts out the corrosion and he welds in a bit of fresh plate where it used to be and, and then he'll grind it back and sand it all up nicely. He'll take the worn out parts and replace the new one, replace it with new ones. What he takes, he essentially goes and picks up a piece of junk out of somebody's back paddock that's got tree growing up through it and rust and he turns it into something almost new. Something which works. And that's what God does with us. He takes an old piece of junk and he makes it new. Not one of us are born into the kingdom of God. You enter the kingdom of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And many who we might think are likely candidates for the kingdom of God because they're nice people, good people, gentle people, from the right class or from the right family, well, they may be excluded because they're not disciples of Jesus Christ. God embraces even the outcast who puts their faith in Jesus Christ and he casts out those who do not. The fourth and final point I want to make is the sovereignty of God. In our reading today we we heard a a whole bunch of people who were healed by the power of God. Does that still happen today? Do people still get healed today? I see a lot of heads nodding up and down. Yeah. Do Christians still have the authority to call on the name of Jesus for healing in 2013? Yes, we do. But if you believe that, then you're faced with a problem. Why isn't everyone healed? I'm pretty sure that all of us here today have at some time prayed for someone who is sick and they have not gotten well. Maybe we've prayed for somebody who is sick and they've ended up dying. My dad got pancreatic cancer. We prayed in faith for his healing. 
And later on, when the doctor looked at his scan, he'd had another scan done. And, um, and we actually had a read of what the, um, you know, the professionals that read the scans, what are they called, Robin? No, no, the fellow who does the reading. What's he called? Radiologist. What he'd written about it. And we thought, that's just a bit confusing. And they went to the doctor and said, what does this mean? He says, oh, well, what that means is from where the doctor cut out the cancer, it hasn't grown back again. We said, but don't you remember that when the surgeon opened him up, that the surgeon said it's too big, it's spread too far, we can't cut it out, we can't do anything, we'll just do a little bit of replumbing to make him a little bit more comfortable and then send him home to die? Don't you remember that? He said, oh. well, it says here that it's gone. I went, Wow. God's healed him. He's taken away this cancer. That's amazing. Because pancreatic cancer you don't get better from. You don't. But within two years he was dead. Because a short time later he developed more symptoms and it was lymphoma this time. It was a different cancer altogether. And we prayed and prayed and prayed for him. But God didn't heal him of the lymphoma. What is that? God will sometimes heal somebody of one thing but not another. Why? Why does God sometimes heal people and then other times not? Well, for us to begin to understand that, the first reason, first answer that we've got to get firmly in our minds is why does God heal? And most of us know why we want God to heal. We want God to heal so that we can be better. We want God to heal so that this person that I love will be around a bit longer. I've got to be blunt and say that's not the reason God heals. The reason God heals is it brings him glory. Now you agree with that, don't you? When you pray and God answers your prayers... God gets glory. And when Jesus healed, it was all about Jesus. It was all about God. And yet when we ask for healing, usually we make it about ourselves. Matthew tells us why Jesus healed all these people. He said, when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him and he, brought out, sorry, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfil what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Jesus healed to demonstrate to the people that he was the one who had been foretold would come by the prophets. Jesus healed these people to demonstrate his authority. Jesus healed to glorify God. Jesus healed to prove that he was the one spoken of. And Isaiah did speak the truth. Jesus did take up our infirmities. Jesus did carry our diseases. And you know, when Jesus returns, there is not going to be any sickness. There is not going to be any disease in the place that Jesus has been preparing for us for 2,000 years. Today, though, we live in a new era. We don't live by proof. We live by faith. 
If Jesus has to heal someone to prove to me that he is Lord, then I've missed the whole concept of faith. Jesus has nothing left to prove. He made his final proof by by hanging a vacancy sign up on an empty tomb in Israel 2,000 years ago. Jesus has already given the proof. The time for proving himself is gone. We don't live by proof, we live by faith. And that's exactly how the leper approached Jesus. The leper trusted in Jesus' power, but he did not presume upon it. Now there's a real challenge for us. To trust in Jesus' power, but not presume upon it. The leper didn't demand healing. The leper didn't try and coerce Jesus into healing him. He left room for the sovereignty of God. And until we understand that God is sovereign, until we understand that God has a will and that God's will is perfect, until we understand that God is good and nothing that God does is bad, until we begin to let God be the good God that he is and until we begin to trust in him that, we are going to continue to be plagued with that question, why does God heal some people and not others? The only way to stop being bothered by that question is to trust in the sovereignty of God, is to trust God knows all things. God is all powerful. God is king and I am his subject, but I can trust him with that because he's a good God. When you know that God is sovereign, when you know that God sees and understands all things, when you trust that God is good and everything that he does is a demonstration of that goodness despite how we feel about it, the question of why God heals some and not others will never bother you again. The leper said, Lord, if you are willing you can make me clean. Firstly, he acknowledged that Jesus is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, that means he's sovereign. Jesus is not some kind of vending machine that we put in the right amount of money, do the right thing, press the right buttons, ask for the right stuff, and out pops the healing. Jesus is not a vending machine. Jesus is Lord. Which is why the leper said, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The leper had the faith to know that God can and does heal. And he asked for that healing. If it is God's will. To pray in faith is to trust God no matter what his answer is. Of course we can and should tell him our heart's desires. But above this, to pray for his will to be done. Even Jesus did that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed so fervently that his sweat was like drops of blood. Can you remember what he said? Father, if there's any other way, I don't want to go to the cross. Yet not my will, but your will be done. The biggest faith that we can have 
is to agree with God that his sovereign will is best.